This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell. Hey, I'm glad you're with me. Last Wednesday night in the UK, Germany, other parts of Europe too, the price of natural gas rose 40%. Now you heard that right. It jumped 40% in just one night. Now, the question is, does it surprise you that a major commodity representing nearly a quarter of the world's energy consumption can go up 40% in just a few hours? See, the implications are massive, but I think the message may be even more important to understand. And my bet is there's, uh, I don't know if we'll be able to find anyone in government who would understand the significance, but more about that in a moment. I'm also going to talk about the energy moves in general with Joseph Schachter. I mean, come on, what's going on? Oil's doubled since this time last year. Coal's up, what? 250%. Let's talk about natural gas in Europe. It's up 500%. And spoiler alert, it impacts virtually everything we buy, let alone home heating oil and gasoline prices. Far beyond that. I'm also going to ask Victor Adair as I go live to the trading desk about trading these energy moves. And you know what? I can't leave this week without asking one of my favorite tech analysts, Blake Corbett, about the revelation of the former Facebook employee who had everybody talking about some of the behemoth practices. But I guess they didn't talk about it Monday when the global system crashed. Plus, I'm going to ask Michael Levy to get personal about the impact on small business of these supply chain shortages we're hearing so much about. I mean, come on, it's been a terrible environment for small business. And I'll tell you, the supply chain problems hit them in many ways, I think that most people don't even think about. And I got Aussie on what we should take away from the latest real estate numbers. And yes, a quote of the week, truly shocking stat, and a goofy award. And by the way, One of our listeners says that every time someone listens to Money Talks, their IQ goes up 10 points. Well, you know what? They might be right this week. But back to that 40% rise in natural gas prices in just a few hours Wednesday. So back to, are you surprised to hear that a major commodity can go up that fast in a few hours? Reminds me of that 500% increase in overnight interest rates in mid-September 2019. Now, I don't know any analysts who actually saw that coming. I mean, we did warn about it, thanks to Martin Armstrong, who said in the summer of that year, there were serious liquidity problems in the overnight lending markets, and that would send rates to the roof. But I don't know anyone else. The point is, they couldn't imagine a move of that size in such a short time. So what else aren't we imagining? What about the double in oil, as I said, the 100% plus moves in copper or coffee? Were you surprised by the explosion in prices for collectibles like baseball, football, hockey cards? I mean, this week on Money Talks, uh, in Money Talks tweets and the Facebook page, we posted the picture of a very modest Vancouver house that was listed at $1.7 million on September 8th, sold seven days later for two and a quarter million, a 32% increase over ask. I bet that surprised some people. And most of us, well, we can't even imagine the rate of change. We're, we're constantly surprised. We never would have predicted moves of this magnitude. Hey, let me digress for a sec. I just want to be clear what my goal is on Money Talks. And I think it's hard for some people to understand. I have no interest in changing anyone's mind. You can think whatever you want. But my goal is to broaden the discussion, expand the horizons. And in this case, it's to understand the speed and rate of change in anticipating what's coming. What frightens me is that I see no indication that policymakers understand how fast things can change. And that means they are dramatically underestimating risk. And it scares me when it comes to things like the massive debt we've taken on. We watch these dramatic moves in so many markets, and yet it seems 
that we don't think it's possible when it comes to interest rates, despite what happened in September 2019 in the overnight lending markets. And in a world awash with government and individual debt, I'll tell you, the key variable is interest rates. And the risk, as we've seen in so many markets, is that they could rise much faster than anticipated. Well, actually, that's clear, they already have in some emerging markets. My own bet is that central banks are going to be forced to use everything at their disposal to keep interest rates down. I mean, with the amount of debt that's been accumulated, they, they need inflation, which would boost government revenues. They certainly can't afford deflation, which would make it far worse. But as inflationary measures pick up, they're going to have to be more active in the bond market. I mean, that's something we'll be chronicling on a regular basis. But I'm going to finish with this. My biggest complaint over the last year and a half was the dramatic change in monetary policy that we didn't appreciate any risk there. We weren't told there was any risk. It was never acknowledged. I'm talking about the huge deficit spending. And a final point. Every policy has consequences. Our job is to anticipate them and have risk management strategies in place when we don't. So I'm glad you're with me. We got a lot to discuss. Well, how can we not talk more about what's going on in the energy sector? It's, uh, I mean, the thing is, it impacts all of us. And we're going to spend more time on this today. I mean, whether it's a shocking stat or whether it's a goofy award, I'm going to talk to Victor Dare about trading this, you know, but I've got Joseph Schachter on, very pleased he's found time for Schachter Asset Management. Uh, I've told him to wipe the smile off his face. No, I'm just kidding, because the stocks, the stocks in the portfolio you recommend to your uh, followers have been uh, really spectacular, but along with the price movement. Uh, let me start with this, Joseph. Uh, I remember when you first told us that oil was going over 100 bucks, it was going back about a year now. And I remember thinking that's right in our theme of supply chain problems, commodity bull market. And of course, we got a lot of blowback then. What do you mean oil's going back to 100? It's going to zero kind of thing. Well, we're back, uh, you know, in that direction. Let me just first ask, do you still think oil's going over 100? Uh, I think in the next three, four years, we may be at all time highs above 147 of Q208. The problem is we don't go in a straight line. Things go, if you remember, we were negative pricing in March, April of 2020, and we've run up to, let's say, $80 now. A quarter or to a third or even a 50% correction, if there's weaker economic conditions, is normal. So the jobs report that came out uh, on Friday from the United States was disappointing. The problems with the real estate sector and the two or three big organizations in China going under the scare in the banking system. They're closing down half the electricity uh, for a lot of industry in the eastern part of China, declare the air in Shanghai and Beijing before the you know, February 22 uh, Winter Olympics. So you've got the two biggest economies in the world having sluggish or weaker economic conditions for the next four months. That's not good for the price of oil. Historically, at bottoms, it's very easy to pick the bottom in oil because once the price of oil goes below the replacement cost, i.e. in March of 2020 and in April, you had negative pricing. Both operating costs are 15 bucks and then you have interest costs and your royalties. Your break even is, you know, just to make the first buck is like $40 a Canadian. Well, if you're negative pricing, you weren't making money and the stocks were all decimated. It was a great buying opportunity. And in uh, March 13th and a number of other times, we put out table pounding buys. We're now in the camp that the price of oil is too high and that we're probably going to see a correction here. 
probably from 80 into the 50 to 60. I think fair value for oil based on the economic conditions we see now is 50 to 60. But everything goes to excess. Excess on the upside, excess on the downside. March and April of 2020 was the downside. We're now in the excess on the high side. We've been there for a while. I've been bearish early, but uh, I think the, the, the downside is so significant. And it's caused by, the tops are caused by general market conditions. 2008, 2009, well, 2007, you started having the problems with the financial crisis with real estate. 2020, the dot-com bubble. 1987, a, a deal not closing. And then the general market comes down and energy, which has got everything going well for it, like in 2008, uh, the, you know, OPEC was running flat out. There was no excess oil around. Demand was strong. But then all of a sudden, a, a general market event happens. And then all of a sudden, the demand side disappears. So we're seeing that demand side weaken now. And we're seeing supplies adequate. And that's really the issue here is if we have an, uh, an economic negative event here, which is, you know, Evergrande can say it's the start. Uh, you know, we can talk about the job numbers in the states, the fact that they can't get the bills passed for the stimulus bills. All of that is going to lower economic demand in both countries. If the United States and China soften and all of the you know, auxiliary countries that work with them are softening and this whole issue of the supply chain continues into 2023, all of that is negative for the price of oil. Well, I think a couple of takeaways I want people to make sure they heard there is one is that things don't go up in a straight line. That doesn't sound profound, but it's really important to remember because we get in the midst of a move and uh, people sometimes lose perspective that there's that side. The other, it sort of tells me, Joseph, if I'm a long-term investor, I probably don't sweat these moves because if longer term, we're going higher. Uh, the other thing, you know, so traders will be very interested in what you just said, but maybe a longer term investor. And then the third thing, and, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but what I'm hearing is that uh, if you got some sort of a significant correction, it would be a buying opportunity because overall, longer term, we're headed higher. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm I'm looking for a correction potentially that lasts through the end of uh, this quarter maybe even into the first half of 2022, depending upon all the resolution of some of these issues. Mm -hmm. the, the fact that China is not going to really turn their economic engine on until after the Olympics is over tells me this could drag into the first quarter for sure of 2022. Uh, but I'm bullish longer term because we're under investing in energy and the transition to the renewables is not happening fast enough and not enough capital, not enough technology breakthroughs. Like if you want an EV, if I was in Calgary, if I want to go up to Edmonton, see my, 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 my daughter and grandkids, I want to charge it up here in Calgary, go to Edmonton, see them and come back. Well, that means it's got to go 600 kilometers. They don't have those vehicles yet. And so that to me is the basic issue. We need technological breakthroughs. We talked earlier about the wind problem in the North Sea. Uh, we've talked about, uh, you know, the issue with solar. If, uh, that, if, there's no, if there's a massive cloud cover, you're not going to get much charge there. So I think that uh, we're going to be using, I think my preference, and I've said this at your conference a number, and almost every year, my preference is natural gas. It's the cleanest burning of all the fuels, and it's, and it's easy, and we have a lot of it in Canada, and we're going to have in 2025 an LNG export facility on the West Coast, hopefully more in the, you know, in the, in the years thereafter, or in the doubling of that train to Kitimat. And so we will become a major juggernaut in production of natural gas, which will displace coal in Asia. And the problem is we don't have access to the east coast of Canada to get it to, to uh, Europe. 
So that really is, is, is the basic issue is that we need to find more transportation methodologies to get the cleanest burning fuels. And we also need to continue to spend a large amount of money on technological breakthroughs on cap carbon capture, methane capture, um, you know, all the uh, you know, hydrogen issues, uh, all of those issues will continue. Uh, point is, there's a, a timing problem here that uh, the talk about renewables is far ahead of our ability to make that transition at this point. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done, uh, whether it's raising trillions in capital, whether it's, uh, you know, I mean, again, I don't see why a major player is going to sit there and go, I'm going to invest $20 billion uh, in fossil fuels when I know that we're in this transition period. And I think we're getting caught a little bit. And you mentioned, uh, yeah, the wind problem in uh, the North Sea. I mean, what happened in the UK is the wind didn't blow. Simple as that. And they didn't have the backup power. And in, and again, Canadians may not be sensitive to how dramatic this has been. I mean, there's factory closures, there's gasoline shortages, there are electricity prices at 12-year highs and go across the world to China. And it's the same story. Uh, so I'm not sure if there's been a coordinated, uh, I've been very critical that we have no practical plan. We got a lot of verbiage, a lot of virtue signaling, but no practical plan for renewables. And the big issue with, 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 with this whole climate change argument is we want to do the right thing, but they put these guardrails or, or posts in the ground saying we want to be here at certain times. Well, they've never invested enough and the governments haven't got us there. And so they keep on pushing the guardrail or the timeline into the future. And so that's one of the problems. The other one is natural gas and the industry, uh, if, you know, light oil, um, you know, grades of oil and all the things the industry is doing to be environmentally more, more, more productive, getting to net zero. Companies like White Cap with carbon capture has a net zero already. Uh, other companies are looking at carbon capture or methane and other things. We're, we're doing more in Canada than probably any other energy producing country in the world. And we're not getting the credit for it. We're getting, you know, countries like Norway saying we're going to sell all our Canadian oil and gas stocks. The case Depot saying the same thing. And yet they don't realize that we are the leaders and therefore they should be praising what the Canadian industry is doing and saying, why don't we take those technologies and those systems that are being used by TransCanada, by Enbridge, by you know, uh, Suncor by, you know, by, by CNQ and take them around the world and the world will be a better place because of less carbon footprint and less environmental negative footprint. And yet that's not happening. The Canadian government should be a champion of what the industry is doing instead of looking them in the eye and saying, you're the guilty ones. And again, a problem, that's where you're not getting the reinvestment or you won't get, you know, going forward. Uh, I'm just thinking the irony of this. If you want lower energy prices, we have to hope for a weak economy in this environment, you know, and obviously that has a whole bunch of repercussions. So, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing that's happened here. It's grabbed people's attention. I think these issues have to be brought forward. You've done a great job for us today and you do it at Schachter Asset or Energy, uh, you know, which is a tremendous, uh, your newsletter. And uh, I just invite people to go there. Joseph Schachter, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. And, and the people can access our weekly Eye on Energy on your website, uh, our team sends it to them. So we cover the macro side, we cover OPEC moves, we talk about what's going on in price and our views on the general market uh, related to energy. Anything specific goes to our, our normal product. Great stuff. So that's mikesmoneytalks.ca, which is 
where most people are listening to this podcast. This is all working out beautifully. Joseph, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. My pleasure. Same to you as well. Time now for the quote of the week. You know, one of the features of the discussion of COVID-19 in general, and in Canada specifically, has been the discouragement of alternative opinions or criticisms from medical professionals who challenge the government and public health officials. Instead of debate, a degree of certainty has been presented that's not warranted by the research. Hollow mantras like follow the science are used to squash discussion rather than open it up, when in fact the science is all over the map as evidenced by massive differences in approaches and restrictions in different jurisdictions, all of them claiming to be following the science. You know, at times, CDC guidelines differed from World Health Organization guidelines, which differed from public health uh, officials' guidelines. But it brings me to my quote of the week by Dr. Vinay Prasad, Master of Public Health, a practicing hematologist, oncologist, and associate professor in the Department of epidemiology and biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco, and Jeffrey S. Flyer, Higginson Professor of Physiology and Medicine at Harvard Medical School, former Dean of Harvard Medical School. Now, I give their unassailable credentials because, as I said, the knee-jerk reaction is to this anyone who suggests a broad discussion of COVID-19 protocols and mandates is warranted. In, in quotes, when major decisions must be made amid high scientific uncertainty, as is the case with COVID-19, we can't afford to silence or demonize professional colleagues with heterodox views. Even worse, we can't allow questions of science, medicine, public health to become captives of tribalized politics. Today, more than ever, we need vigorous academic debate. They go on to state in quotes, we are two academic physicians with different career interests who sometimes disagree on substantive issues but we share the view that vigorous debate is fundamental to the existence of universities where individuals with different ideas who have a commitment to reason compete to persuade others based on evidence, data, and reason. Now is the time to foster, not stifle, open to dialogue among academic physicians and scientists about the current pandemic and the best tactical responses to it, each of which involves enormous trade-offs and unanticipated consequences, end of quote. Maybe it's good to repeat that last line, each of which involve enormous trade-offs and unanticipated consequences. Well, sadly, that's rarely acknowledged. In fact, there's no public evidence that's even considered by our political leaders who hide behind the public health officers when it suits them, ignore them when it doesn't, as they politicize the pandemic for political gain. Well, one of the huge stories this week, maybe the story this week, was Facebook. Why? We got a whistleblower. We've got a huge meltdown of Facebook during the week, and you've got congressional hearings. The list is a long one. I thought, I got to get somebody who knows their stuff here, and I couldn't think of a better person than Blake Corbett. Uh, you know, in the investment banking field for years, looking at tech, a tech analyst. Now he, though, works at BBTV, which is broadband TV, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But Blake, let's start with the Facebook story. Uh, uh, which one do you want to start with, the meltdown or, <laughs> or the whistleblower? We get so many choices, but let's start with the meltdown because most importantly, um, it wasn't a hack. I think there was some uh, conspiracy theory expectation that this you know, was a DDoS attack or something like that, but Facebook came out and admitted it was not a hack, but what they did, it was a self-inflicted problem. They, they locked themselves out of the house and then they locked themselves out of the place where they kept the extra key. And it seems odd for something like this to happen to such a large company, but for six hours, 
you know, Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp were down, and it was a, an important moment for anybody who used those platforms. Do you think it, by the way, you know, there's a lot of talk as Facebook monopoly. I think it added to the case of those people who are making that claim. Facebook says no, but a lot of people are saying yes. I thought the sort of reaction to uh, when the network went down or when Facebook rather went down uh, kind of added fuel to those people who suggest it's a monopoly. You know what? You're right. It does for sure add fuel to it. I mean, I trained as an economist, so monopoly has got a very specific definition um, and it, this doesn't really meet it. But it is clear that Facebook is is an important and, and truly integral part of, of so many businesses. I mean, the numbers are staggering. There are 1.9 billion humans, which is a quarter of the planet, that are, have a Facebook profile. That use, they're monthly active users, even more important, monthly active users. And then beyond that, 93% of businesses, I mean, everybody used to have a, um, uh, if you were a business, you had to have a web page. Now you also have to have a Facebook page. And there are 200 million businesses that use Facebook as you know, either all of their platform or part of their platform in their business. And that is incredible. Yeah, I mean, the numbers are staggering. Or, or actually, they're not even comprehensible. I, you know, uh, it's hard to comprehend when you're talking things that size. I mean, when you say 93% of businesses, it kind of reminds me of you had to have a telephone going back so many years. You know, <laughs> how do you do business without being on Facebook? So, but I mean, it was, I mean, you got the server crash there. And then let's talk about the whistleblower because that was also a headline grabber and, you know, made national TV, of course, and it was at the Senate committee. Indeed. And that's so what that was Sunday night. And then the, and then the collapse comes on Monday, bad week for Facebook. And, um, and so Francis Haugen was, uh, you know, an employee and a senior person in the research group at, um, at Facebook for two years. And, and, you know, prior to leaving, you know, captured a whole bunch of data and, um, and, and memos are extremely damning. Um, but they are the evidence that identify what we've been hearing for some years. There's a book by, um, by McNamee called Zucked um, from 2015 that uh, describes, you know, Facebook as heading towards a problem. And now five, six years later, we're seeing somebody step out of Facebook and say, this is the problem. And, and the problem is that it's um, not only are we addicted to um, Instagram and Facebook, um, and not only is it um, clear that it's um, unhealthy, but it's, um, it's now um, evident that Facebook knew this. And um, the probably the best corollary I read um, about this was that this is the big tobacco moment for Facebook. Well, I mean, looking looking at uh, teenagers, for example, which was was mentioned specifically, but I, I don't think it's certainly restricted there. That uh, one of the things that was disconcerting is that they realized that they were hooking these people, but then there was another aspect uh, when it came to some of their uh, what was being put on Facebook itself was they certainly weren't hesitant about playing up. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, terrorist, uh, negative, because uh, they knew it drew, drew uh, you know, views, eyeballs. Indeed, indeed. So that Frances Huggin, the, the whistleblower, she, she made that point as well, which is that, that negative news travels faster, it generates a more visceral response in humans, and, um, and it gets more traction, more attention, and, um, and you, know, you can create a firestorm more quickly and more easily with um, with negative news than you can with positive news. And Facebook itself 
um, by creating groups, which, you know, on the face of it, and, and, and when you describe them, they are a great idea. People that have common interests come together in, in groups on Facebook. Um, the problem is that, and it's very clear now for years, um, and Facebook has known this better than anybody else from their own research, that those groups um, are not only just echo chambers and, and, and they're far from harmless. They are quite clearly um, a source of um, acceleration of, of negative news and they are greatly benefiting anybody on the sort of negative side, hate mongers and um and and um and and negative news flourishes and not only does facebook know that but they're benefiting from it and they know they're benefiting from it because it improves engagement and gosh we we, we absolutely don't need more of that i'll there's one last thing on that and i want to talk to you about stock uh but and that is uh, just so you know you're talking to someone who's been uh, censored on say, facebook three different times and for saying basically nothing and, uh, you know, their, their censorship problem is a huge one. I mean, whether it's important issues like their censorship of the Wuhan, uh, lab origin theory, which now has far more credibility than any other theory at this moment. It hasn't been decided for sure, but they didn't even allow a discussion and other instances of that sort let right down to individuals who say, Hey, I was just pulled off of Facebook and they don't tell me why. I mean, I think they're going to be in the spotlight for a while more. Indeed. And in fact, I think your your experience is an evidence as, as to how difficult this is, how important the, the, the changes are and how difficult it is. They're using a, you know, a hammer when they need tweezers and it's not working. Um, it's it's clearly um, uh, um, uh, not a refined process. And it is um, um, and it's and, and if they, you know, if they move the pendulum too far, they, they, you know, they clear out all the crazies, but they end up capturing a whole bunch of people who are trying to do good in the, in the meantime. And that, so that's, I think, um, evident of, of the problem they have. It's very difficult to to sift and sort this. Let me come to the stock for a second. I mean, uh, I've got to say I haven't been recommending Facebook, despite the fact that I do appreciate the dominance that you referred to earlier. Uh, does this really impact the stock? Do you remember going back a couple of years and there was the privacy issue and the stock reacted? I think correctly, I said that ain't going to last long. You know, <laughs> people will go into the stock and use Facebook regardless of their privacy or at least some people. But what do you think about the impact on the stock at this point? So this sort of thing is going to have a negative impact on, um, you know, on a company like Facebook. It's had, you know, this week um, a bit of a negative impact. But at the end of the day, it's cash flow that will drive, um, you know, valuation. And um, and that comes down to, you know, that measure we described, we just talked about, which is engagement. Um, it's not just um, views or followers. Um, those are all very interesting. But what matters is how much time people that are on the site spend on the site. And the more time they spend on the site, it's the same as YouTube and other, and other social platforms. The more time spent there, the more opportunity for ads. The longer the TV program, the more ad slots you have in there. And those ad slots are money. So, um, so, so, so the question that becomes, well, what, you know, what is going to happen to Facebook over time? So, um, it's clear from, to me, at least anyway, from what the whistleblower was saying that Facebook sees over time, they need to work their way down in demographic. Facebook is seen as, you know, what the people my age and older use to communicate, you know, Instagram in the middle and um, TikTok or um, Snapchat, you know, lower down and whatever comes in later will capture the, the, the young generation. But 
Facebook has a, you know, a demographic problem or will have over time. And, and they need to capture um, young eyeballs, young audiences um, in order to stay relevant. Well, we obviously will keep it. This is an ongoing story, as you say. It's such a dominant company and, and uh, so and so many people's lives. So we'll keep an eye on it. But I, I want to put you on the spot here, a little curveball. Blake, you were in the sort of financial side of things, the analytical side of tech, and you've joined broadband TV. So give me a quick snip of that. And then I'm going to put you on the spot and say, I want you to join us to do a further elaboration of what's going on in that space, how individuals seem to be, some of them, making a fortune on things like YouTube. And I know that's what you're dealing with directly. Indeed. Uh, you know, what Facebook and, you know, YouTube and all the social platforms have, have done over the last 10 years is provide a source of income and a job and a, and a you know, and a, and, um, and a career for, for more than just thousands, even millions of people at, at all levels, uh, making a few thousand dollars a month to millions of dollars um, by creating content putting it on, um, you know, making it available on a platform, um, whether it's um, YouTube or, or something else, and, um, and the ad revenue gets shared. So um, that um, is, is not only something that, you know, that we've seen over the last 10 years grow and turn into a legitimate source of, uh, of, of income and job, but we're also now seeing um, a greater acceleration in the shift of ad dollars from traditional media TV, radio, and whatever else to digital, um, and that continues to flow. It's been great. It's, it's been a process. It's undergone. For, you know, it's been undertaken for the last 10, 15 years. It's now um, accelerating and growing because where those digital ad dollars um, or those ad dollars are going, the digital platforms are bigger, deeper. They have more content on them, and they have engagement. We are spending more time watching YouTube videos or on Facebook or on Instagram than we ever did um, or than, than we did, than we are doing on television. And it's, it's the shift. Our, we only have so many hours in the day and where we used to spend it um, watching Gilligan's Island, we're now watching, you know, something on Facebook. Incredible. This is why I've got to talk with you again very qu quickly because it's a huge area, big change, but also a big opportunity, all of those things. And uh, so... I just got to say, I hope you'll join. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot. Will you join me again very shortly? Absolutely. Absolutely. My favorite topic. One aspect of the pandemic that I still don't think gets near enough attention is the individual impact, what it's like to own a small business in this environment of restrictions and guidelines. I love the way Peggy Noonan put it, said the professional class of politicians, media people, scientists, and credentialed chatterers care about business, but in the abstract, small business bankruptcies concern them. They have a sense some people will lose their livelihoods, but they have no particular heart for them. They never betray any appreciation of the romance of opening a place, being your own boss, and offering a good product, and being part of the town, and being a success. They don't understand the sacrifice it takes or that shuttering of a store is literally the death of a dream. 
Well, that's why I want to talk a little bit about the supply chain problem. We've been talking about them in the abstract, saying this is what's going to happen. We've got supply shortages here, there, and everywhere. But I want to bring in Michael Levy, who, of course, has got his own experience of owning and operating a small business, as I have myself. And, Mike, I want to talk about the supply chain problems in that context. I mean, one of the things that stuck with me that you said a couple of weeks ago was that you were worried for retailers about Christmas inventory coming in. Well, Mike, I am. I still am. And uh, what I've read this week is if you want to buy it and you see it on a store shelf, you better buy it today because supply chain, they may not get any more. But just think about this impact on small business. It's just that it might not be a holdup on what you uh, are, are trying to receive, whether it's packaging for your material or, or for your merchandise, or whether it's the actual merchandise itself. And the fact is a small business who uses, let's say a bank for financing has to buy when they can with no assurance that they're going to be able to match the packaging to the product and no assurance that they're going to be able to sell it all or run out. It really is a quandary. And for those that uh, don't have big time financing, it just poses another problem. Yeah. And that, but you know, that's an aspect that I haven't heard talked about is that let's say you're worried about getting more product, but you can get it today. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure that if someone's worried about their small manufacturing or big for that matter, but, or their retail or whatever it is, has to be thinking, should I go out and buy you know, seven months worth of stuff instead of three months or one year's worth of stuff? Well, it, that's exactly the exactly the question is, if I buy it today, even though it's plentiful, am I going to be able to buy it again two months, three months from now? Or uh, have I got to buy and think long range, long term? And um, there, there are so many examples out there. And I don't think, just as you said off the offset or at the offset, outset, that we think about the small businesses and the thing. We've been talking about the Walmarts, the Home Depots, but not not the small business that has as a family-run business or it's a business that employs 20, 30, 40, 50 people. How do they do it? Yeah, and, and again, I want to come back to something you've just said, though. So let's say I decide to buy six months' worth or a year's worth, you know, sort of double or triple what I normally would in terms of supplies. Well, where am I going to get the money? I mean, that's another thing. You've just come out of a pandemic where very few in the smaller business retail, for example, is flush or a smaller manufacturer is flush. I mean, they've been trying to survive. So where do you come up with the dough even if you wanted to buy, you know, six months supply? Well, if you have a viable business, your bank is probably going to play ball with you, especially if you've been at it for several years and your track record is good and there's demand for your product. But let's say, let's say you own a small brewer and and you brew beer and you're one of the cottage breweries um, and you have quite a successful business. Well, you got to buy the cans to put the beer in, but you also have to buy the grain or, or whatever comes to the hops, your, your, your product in order to manufacture your beer. So if you get an offer for cans, well, you've got to go out and buy almost as many as they're offering you but then there's been a drought on the prairies and you can't get the product to fill. So now you get the product to fill. Uh-oh, I'm running out of cans. So you, you, you've got a conundrum. You've got to take what comes, when it comes, in the amount that uh, they are offering you. And then you've got to also go out and worry about paying for it. 
Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I'm glad you're talking about this. And I just want people to be sensitive to how difficult it is. It doesn't matter if you're, matter if you're manufacturing or you're doing, you know, product sales or what have you. This is a tough environment. We take for granted that stuff's always available when we want it. And we're in an environment where that's not the case. Uh, you know, we talked about energy, uh, you know, right now, uh, things that we just accept. Well, that's not so much the case with the supply chain. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that forward, Mike. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's shocking stat. Now, I better warn you, I'm going to go all economic on you. But maybe I'll start by asking a question. If you'd put your money in a one-year Government of Canada bond to save to buy a house, the average Canadian house last year at this time, which would yield you about two-tenths of 1%. So after this full year, would you be better or worse off in terms of your ability to buy? Well, I think we all know that average house prices went up something like 18%, obviously more in some areas. But let's use 18%. And you saved at the rate of 0.2, two tenths of 1%. So you'd be way further behind after a year. In fact, 17.8% worse off on average by taking the average house price increase minus what your savings account earned. Well, it's the same problem if you take something like gasoline. You had money in a savings account. While gasoline rose an average of 35% in the year. So your money buys, well, 35% less gasoline minus what your savings earned. How about meat prices? Up 10% in the last six months alone. While your savings made, what, about a tenth of 1% for the half year? I mean, most of us understand that the cost of much of what we buy has gone up far more than what we could earn in a government bond or a savings account. But what might be not as well known is that this is what is meant by real interest rates. You take the interest rate you get, but minus the inflation rate. In this case, it's negative. I mean, you take what your savings could earn in a government bond minus the inflation rate. Well, you're going to hear the term negative real interest rates in the coming years, actually, if inflation rates stay high. Today, you see, a one-year bond earns about three-tenths of 1% in interest while inflation rates about 4%. So the real rate you're earning is negative 3.7%. In other words, after a year of saving, on average, you buy about 3.7% less. And if we're talking specifics like housing or maybe copper or stocks or oil, well, you can buy far less after a year of savings because their prices rose much faster than what you're getting on a government bond. So why own that government bond? That's the big question and an important one. On the short term, uh, short term, maybe an institution just parking money for a year or something, and safety is a big concern. Maybe they're a pension fund, and they've got requirements to keep a certain percentage in government bonds. But other than some other sort of specific circumstances, the answer is there's no reason to hold government bonds when the real rate of return is negative. And why is this important? Because at some point, bondholders are going to recognize that government bonds are a losing proposition, and maybe they'll start selling. Hey, but who's going to buy? As I mentioned above, maybe some unique circumstances, but that's about it. So here's the point. Selling will lower the bond prices and interest rates will rise. Doesn't matter what the Bank of Canada wants at that point. And that could be a huge problem for government and individuals who've got a lot of debt. So what will happen, though, probably is the Bank of Canada would step in. They go back to creating the money, buying government bonds and regular corporate bonds to prop up prices and keep interest rates low. So the big question is, can they be successful? And if they are, what are the ramifications? See, if rates stay near record lows, I think we'll see continued higher asset prices. As confidence in paper currency has uh, declined, people want to exchange those paper dollars for other assets. 
But what if the central bank's not successful? They get overwhelmed by the amount of selling that's taking place. Well, interest rates would spike much higher because this is on the short list of one of the most important financial questions of our lives. And it impacts, well, every one of us. I want to talk a little bit about real estate now. I'm going to bring in Ozzy Jurek. Ozzy, uh, we just got the numbers for September in the past week. And one of the things that we're starting to read about is a drop in activity. Uh, but there's a lot of factors that go into that. And I just want to make sure that people have a broader understanding of what those numbers were really telling us. Yeah, and because the numbers are, are pretty astounding. We have in places like Toronto and Vancouver, we have sales down. I mean, in Toronto, 18%, in Vancouver, down 27%. At the same time, we got listings down. And you say, well, that's unusual because it's always one or the other. If listings go up, then sales go down. And when sales go down, listings should go up. But right now, they don't. Well, one of the things you mentioned to us a while ago was that you thought there was buyer fatigue in the way of the pricing. Not that they didn't want a home. They just can't pay that big an average price, especially in centers like Toronto, Hamilton, Vancouver, somewhat Ottawa, somewhat uh, Montreal, uh, that they just literally get to a price where there's a, you know, we can call it buyer fatigue. I can just call it they can't afford it. Well, that's right. It's simply there's a whole sector of the market that said, okay, you know, look, I got to get a million dollar mortgage, maybe now a million two fifty mortgage. I just can't do it. At the same time, those people that have the money, and remember, everybody that sold a house has money, they can actually drive prices up further. And that's what makes it unusual. I mean, Einstein said that when you're counting a nice girl, an hour seems like a second. When you sit on a hot stove, a second seems like an hour. And that's what that's relativity. Well, what we have is the relativity is there is no product. If there's no product, prices are going to be higher naturally because if I want it and I can afford it, I'm going to drive them higher. I'm just thinking that uh, someone listening to me for five minutes may sound like an hour to them. But when they listen to your golden voice, five minutes sounds like a minute. So there you go. Well, let's let's talk about just quickly going forward here, Ozzy. Okay, so we look at the market. Obviously, we always need more stats, but we're coming into, well, November, but December quieter. January, January I mean, usually, these are broad statements, but usually quieter. Uh, it'll just be interesting. I mean, there still seems to me a shortage of housing, and that's really the problem. Why you have, uh, you know, no one wants to sell because where are you going to buy? That kind of stuff's going on. No doubt, there's a huge portion of the, of the market is like that. And now you add to this that uh, job vacancies, uh, uh, you know, remain elevated. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch of businesses that simply can't get uh, people to work. And these people, they want to live somewhere. Look, Amazon is going to create 8,000 jobs. We've got Disney making a, a movie. Uh, we've got Netflix making a movie a month. We have different industries that are almost new to Vancouver. All these people have to live somewhere. The registration on schools, apparently over 200,000 students will be coming early in the year. All of that needs more supply. And what we have is less supply. And what supply there is, is not willing to sell. Well, and as we were talking earlier in the show, I mean, you look at these energy prices, whether it's natural gas, whether it's oil prices double from last year, natural gas higher than that. Well, I look at some activity revitalized in Calgary and Edmonton. You know, there's other reasons always. I don't want to oversimplify, but that would also be an impetus for more activity. And, you know, it doesn't matter where we're looking, but I'm saying, yeah, it seems like uh, the demand is still, I just think the demand is going to be there as long as we have record low rates. And as you said, yeah, you can get to a price point where that slows things down, but for a while. 
Yeah, there's no question also, of course, and you made this point over and over, low interest rates, the affordability factor. I mean, look, the average home price for single family home in Vancouver, that's average. That's average. It's a million nine hundred forty-two thousand. In September 2019, that was a million five hundred and eight thousand. We've come a long way in, in a couple of years. It's like mind-boggling. And when you look at the, the condos, it the activity that we have, the condos are about the same number of sales. But the active listings, meaning anything that's for sale at the end of the month, is down a whopping 36%, and the new listings are down 21%. So nothing new is coming on, and what is there is shrinking. And so clearly, if I really want to buy something, I got to pay for it and maybe even have a multiple offer. I've seen one in Victoria that had 20 offers. Can you believe it? Yet the general market, most people, I think, have that buyer fatigue and saying, you know what, I, I just can't do it. For now, Audie Jurek will be here to chronicle all the changes. Thanks for taking the time. And I just want to remind people to go to ozbuzz.ca, ozbuzz.ca, Ozzy's regular updates on what the heck's going on in this market. And there's plenty of that. Thanks, Ozzy. Thanks for having me, Mike. And great wishes to all your listeners. Let's go live to the trading desk. I got Victor Adair with me. Vic, as you've heard, I've been chatting with Joseph Schachter. I mean, it's one of the things that's, I mean, you know, arguably the biggest story of the week. It's one of those that it should have been a bigger story longer than this week, but it seems that this is when we grab people's attention. It's this huge move in energy prices. And I mean, uh, you've been watching that whole list yourself. Yeah, whether you're talking, uh, well, certainly the, the big star is uh, natural gas in the UK, but uh, uranium prices, you know, they've doubled since this spring. Uh, and natural gas prices in the United States have doubled since this spring. Crude oil, WTI, has been up um, seven weeks in a row, up 30 percent or so in that period of time. And and coal, you know, the dirtiest, dirty fuel we can find, you know, it's up about 200 percent year to date. So it's been a it's been a across the spectrum jump and, and almost, as you would say, <laughs> certainly unexpected sharp jump in energy prices. Well, let's come to trading that kind of a market. I mean, did the did the charts give you any warning of this? I mean, certainly can't give you a warning when, as we talked about earlier in the show, we got a 40% jump in natural gas prices overnight, you know, in the UK and Germany, et cetera. But, but just generally as a trader, were you watching these moves and saying, I got to get on board? Oh, you, if you had any more embarrassing questions, <laughs> yeah. Mike, I, no, I got to tell you, as a trader, one of the things I got to get used to is I miss so many things. I mean, certainly I saw this happening. Uh, did I take advantage of it? No. You know, I was really busy trading uh, various stock indices, futures and, and currencies and that sort of thing. It couldn't do everything. But, yeah, the, the move just it's almost felt like it came out of nowhere. And, and as, as it got going, it was like, is this justified or not? And so, you know, you didn't want to buy into it. And then after a while, you say, gosh, how could I how could have I missed that? But. You know, I did. So just another one of those I didn't get. But the good news is I didn't lose any money trying to fade it either. Well, you know, right at the top of the show, I was talking about one of the lessons we have to get is how fast things are moving. So I'll give you an example. And this is just me. And please don't put words in uh, anyone think Victor said this. One of my things, because I'm an investor, is looking about positioning. And I wanted to have a position in silver. I wanted to have a position in gold. Because my fear, I don't care about what happens next week. My fear is once the move starts, 
it'll look like this. As so many other things I pointed out right at the top of the show. I mean, this isn't the only kind of category that all of a sudden presto were up. But I I just see the nature of so many moves are these sudden out, out of a, out of nowhere feeling, as you said. You're right. I've seen that this year across the board. Um, you know, we've got a huge annual um, conference coming up in Glasgow next month, the, the COP conference, which is all to do with climate change and that sort of thing. That's going to really keep this in, in, in every in front of everybody's face. What they want to do, they want to cut emissions by law to have various countries sign off on. We will make it illegal to do this and that. They know it's going to cost trillions of dollars to do this over the next couple of decades. The big question is, who's going to pay? Okay, and you have to ask yourself, what you know, was this jump in energy anticipated, like to your question about being a long term investor? Obviously, some folks were. But, you know, it, it did kind of come out. The speed of it was like it just left the gate so fast that if you weren't on the horse, you know, you weren't you weren't going to be there for the ride. And that's kind of my message here. Uh, you know, as I say, as we you know, I'm not the trader. You are, uh, you know, but as an investor, that's why I think it's so important to identify these major trends. And, and to be honest, I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm patting money talks on the back because I don't know anyone else who is talking exactly this way about the revival of commodities in August of 2019 and right into the fall and then into the Outlook Conference of February 220 when we have it as actually the feature, the coming commodity bull market. And I'm just saying that that's the thing I walk away with. Uh, Let me just throw this very quickly at you, Vic. We watched lumber prices take that monster move earlier in the spring, uh, you know, where it went, whatever, 300 to 1700, then it backs up. Would you expect sort of some backups here uh, or is the fundamentals driving in, for example, a cold winter or is that already priced in? I mean, that's always the challenge for people. What elements are already priced into those prices? You know, Mike, uh, just haven't been trading for so long. Anytime I see a market that goes parabolic, mm-hmm. there's the old alarm that rings in the back of my head that's expecting, uh, you know, a serious correction to it. The price of, well, where we started here, UK natural gas soared until Tuesday or Wednesday of this week and then fell in half uh, by today. You know, so, I mean, that's kind of a correction. Yeah, uh, there's there's just um, I guess there's I, I leave you with this. Here's an example. The price of natural gas in North America is less than half of what it is in Europe and Asia. One of the reasons is there's not enough facility to to create LNG, transport it from one continent to another, and then redistribute it once you you get it there, or basically offload it from the ship. So if 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 our listeners are going to be going out and investing in the energy market, it's not just as easy as buying energy. You know, you really need to know what you're doing here, or you could really uh, get yourself into something that doesn't work or, you know, loses money. And I can see Joseph Schachter smiling as he hears you say that, by the way. <laughs> and, a- and so he should. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've known Joseph for years. I have huge respect for him. And there there are so many nuances in this game that you uh, probably folks could do. Uh, you know, I'm a futures trader, but for folks that are just investors and kind of want to have a, a foot in the energy space, some of the broad energy ETFs are maybe a good place to start. Good stuff as always, Vic, and I'll remind people to go to victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. Have a terrific Thanksgiving, Vic. 
Hey, and a great Thanksgiving to you and your family and all our listeners as well, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And as we discussed earlier in the show, well, actually, we've been talking about it for months. Rising energy prices are on the short list for biggest economic stories in the world. Arguably, arguably the biggest story when it comes to your cost of living, as prices for things like gasoline and heating your home and office rise sharply. Fortis, by the way, increased the price for their BC customers who have natural gas by 9% last week. As I said, gasoline uh, costs you about 35% more than it did this time last year. But you know what? The impact is felt in so many other areas. I mean, oil price near double from where they were last year. Well, consider that over 6,000 products are made from petroleum, from anything with plastic in it to synthetics for clothing and shoes. Uh, the price increase is going to get passed on to you as consumers. Plus, all transportation and delivery costs are rising. Again, consumers are going to pay some of that, which brings me to the goofy. And I think this should be filed under the high cost of virtue signaling when it comes to climate change. As Lynn Alden, founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy, states, individuals and institutions are more interested in looking green or feeling green than being green. Well, the result is that our discussion surrounding the transition to green energy has been breathtakingly simplistic, hijacked by climate absolutists who are long on rhetoric and short on realistic practical solutions. Now, again, I've been pointing this out for years, but as far as I can tell, I may be the only one in the media who appreciates the deficiency. I mean, newsflash, there's absolutely no plan to obtain or produce the resources necessary to transition to wind or solar or other renewable forms of energy. And the transition can't happen without them. I mean, you can't build solar panels and wind turbines with hyperbole. Although when it comes to solar panels, it looks like you can build them with slave labor in China, as they've proven in Xinjiang province, which provides the majority of solar panels. But so now after years of discouraging new investment, along with reinvestment in fossil fuels, and you can evidence that by the massive drop in capital investment, not just in Canada, but throughout the Western world. Well, we got a supply problem. And the goofy part? Think about this. After wasting no time curtailing drilling and production on federal land while canceling the Keystone XL pipeline once President Biden entered office, he's now begging OPEC to increase oil production. Well, they said no. In the UK, they're begging oil, I mean, rather coal producers, coal producers to increase production because electricity prices are at 12-year high and their fears of shortages and blackouts this winter. Rolling blackout and factory closures have forced China to release Australian coal that it had stranded in storage because of Australia's stance against China's human rights abuses and aggression. And more than that, by the way, the communists are urging domestic coal producers to increase production after five years of domestic cutbacks. Now, keep in mind, coal is a major contributor to oceanic mercury, for example. Coal-fired electricity contributes to air pollution, which is the cause of numerous health conditions. But now governments are forced to ask for more coal. In Europe, after decommissioning coal and nuclear power, which, by the way, with nuclear power, according to numerous climate activists, that's got to be arguably one of the most ill-informed political decisions. But now Europe is left without backup power and is now begging Russia to increase its exports of natural gas. I mean, simply put, it's extremely ill-advised to stop fossil fuels before the renewable energy grid is available to supply our electrical and other power needs. And we're a long way from that. I mean, we can debate how long, but we're still talking way past this decade. And the result? Upward pressure on energy prices is going to continue. 
of course, with ebb and flows due to the economic cycles. But you'll pay more. Right now, a lot more. The moral of the story, virtue signaling is going to cost you a lot of money. That's all the time we have. I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Hope you have a chance at least to visit with some friends. I know there's restrictions and family. But in the meantime, take it easy. I'm glad you listened to Money Talks. Much appreciated. Subscribe to the Money Talks with Michael Campbell podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you get your on-demand audio for the complete show, daily podcasts, and more.